We are glad to have you with us for Bible study from the second chapter of Philippians. I will read the first 11 verses in Philippians chapter 2. We covered the first four verses last time, so our study will resume at verse 5. But for the sake of continuity and context, here's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What we studied previously in verses 1 through 4, I called an attitude of unselfish humility. Attitude is at the internal core of who we are. Good attitude is described here from God, written by Paul in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Now, in addition to description, we have demonstration. Let me explain. The description of unselfish humility, the description of the attitude Christians ought to have, is in verses 1 through 4. The demonstration of it is written by Paul in verses 5 through 11. And the perfect demonstration of unselfish humility is obviously Jesus Christ. As you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you read his words, as you see Jesus' reactions to people, as you study his conversations with people, you are able to see in real-life narrative unselfish humility. But beyond that, the argument here is just his presence on the earth, his incarnation, then his death, establishes forever that he thought about others. 
in supreme expression. He thought about others in supreme expression. Now, what do we do with that? Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says to Christians, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have access to his example. Paul says, have this attitude, have this mind. If you have the New International Version, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Now, first reaction. I read this and my first thought is, I have much more work to do. Even if you are convinced that you're doing your best, though you may have some satisfaction about your growth and progress, this verse holds up a standard so high when you read this, your first reaction is, this is telling me there is much work for me to do with respect to my attitude. I am to have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. Unselfish, doing nothing out of vain conceit, looking out not only for my interest, but also for the interest of others, putting others first, putting God first, then putting others first in my attitude and actions. This mature humility, the high marks of unselfish character and regard for others is what we see in Christ and what we ought to be working on in our lives. And we will work on this until we die. Have this mind in you. Now, beginning at verse 6 and down through verse 11, one of the most beautiful divinely written statements of what our Savior went through. You have, you have the incarnation and death of Jesus Christ that fills us with such wonder, gratitude, reverence, and humility. This is telling us deity came down to earth without complaint or reservation to live here and die here and then be exalted to the highest place. Christ, who is deity, came down to earth. There was no reluctance. He voluntarily left the ivory palaces of heaven. He made himself nothing, so to speak, taking the very nature of a servant. This is humility. And it brought him to the cross. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Then God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. This is the incarnation. This is deity that became flesh and dwelt among us and then died for us. Now, what was the attitude behind all that? This was the attitude Jesus had, and this is the kind of attitude I need to develop as a disciple of Christ, and you need to develop, and we all need to maintain. 
the basic thought here is simple. Jesus Christ, deity in heaven, voluntarily left the highest position in the universe, over the universe, I ought to say, and went to the very lowest position on earth in order to rescue sinners from divine wrath. This, therefore, is the greatest example of lowering oneself. This is unselfish humility perfectly illustrated. If you ever detect, if you ever detect that your heart is growing cold toward God or toward people, that you're not going to be bothered by demands or sacrifices. If you ever have feelings of isolating yourself from the needs of people, go back and read this well and think about Jesus, who he is and what he did in leaving the splendor and purity of heaven to come down here to this dirty place, this wicked world, to die for us. It should fill us with gratitude and love and devotion, and it should move us away from pride, isolation, self-righteousness, and selfish ambition. I want you to listen again. Let's listen together again. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I would like for us to take a moment to focus on this expression that's in the passage. Made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. New King James made himself of no reputation. American Standard and New American Standard emptied himself. New International Version made himself nothing. Now, clearly, God cannot cease to be God. 
I do not believe Jesus, as some have asserted, gave up his being deity and then I do not believe Jesus, as some have asserted, gave up his being deity, or that he stopped being anything. It can be said, however, that he limited the independent use of certain attributes and prerogatives while on earth. He didn't snap his fingers to get out of trouble or perform a miracle on himself to alleviate pain, or glide above the earth instead of walking. He didn't act in every way he had the power to act while he was on the earth. And we should let Paul explain the main sense of how Christ emptied himself in the rest of verse 7 and 8. It says, By taking the form of a servant and being obedient to the death of the cross. Now, this is the mystery of the incarnation we're talking about. This is what the Bible says, and we accept it by faith, to take this affirmation and pound away at it with scientific objective terror and mathematical demand is not what people of faith do. This is the miracle of the incarnation, and its very nature defies scientific analysis. Here's the way I understand this great truth. Concerning the person of Christ, he is undiminished deity and perfect humanity united in one person forever. He is undiminished deity and perfect humanity united in one person forever technicalities, scientific analysis, theological debate, I have no interest in. This is what the Bible says about the Savior. Undiminished deity and perfect humanity united in one person forever. I read this one time that I found to be helpful. It would have been amazing enough for the eternal God to come to this earth as a mighty king. It was even more amazing that he came as an humble servant. But it's almost beyond comprehension that he would even go lower and die. And even more staggering, his death was not a noble death, but a horrible, ignoble death of a common criminal. For the Jew, whoever was hanged on a tree was accursed of God. Deuteronomy 21, 23. For Gentiles, death by crucifixion was the lowest, most despicable form of death imaginable. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. So Paul is saying that Jesus went from the high of heights to the depth of of depths. We will never begin to know what glory he gave up and what humiliation he suffered on our behalf until we are with him in glory.
But to glory in humility, we must think about the staggering implications of what it meant for the holy, glorious, eternal Son of God to take on human flesh, and not the flesh of a king, but of a servant, and stooping even lower, he willingly and obediently went to the cross for our sins. I'm thankful to Stephen Cole for the wording of that truth that is derived from Philippians chapter 2. Now, let me take up verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus laid down a principle one time. This is back in Matthew 23, 12, and Luke 14, verse 11. He said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Sometimes it can be said the way up is down. James 4 and verse 10, we studied not long ago, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now in the case of Jesus, he humbled himself, but after his death, the father lifted him up to the highest place exalting him by giving him the name that is above every name. This is about rank. This is his superior position above all, the name which is above every name. Now, it will serve a good purpose for me to make this distinction. God exalted him and gave him this place. Jesus did not exalt himself. Men did not exalt Jesus. They cast insults and abuse at him. They jeered and spat upon him and called him names. God the Father exalted him. Acts 5, 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 2, 33 to 36, we're back at Pentecost here. Being therefore exalted by the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, 
if all this we've studied is true, if it really happened this way as documented by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and Jesus is exalted to God's right hand, our response should be submission. We should bow, confess, obey. He humbled himself. What should we do? Bow, confess, and obey him. In all of this we have studied, can you give one example of some truth or some single point we can take away from here, from this passage into life? I want to help you with that. Humility and sacrifice and mercy and love, all these good virtues are defined by the life and death of Jesus Christ. Humility, sacrifice, mercy, and love, all of these good virtues are defined by Jesus Christ. In understanding right attitude, humility, unselfishness, sacrifice, mercy, there may be some value in doing a detailed word study. Dig into the Greek language and see how the words are used in various contexts. All of that can have some value. You can also better understand virtues and good attitudes by being acquainted with people who exhibit these qualities. To be around these people, watch them and be influenced by them. But to understand humility, there is nothing better than to become acquainted with the life of Jesus Christ. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That puts you, that puts me in touch with the supreme example of how to respect God and how to take care of myself spiritually and how to treat people right. I want to point out this passage is not just it is not just a theological affirmation. In context, it is actually more ethical and practical. It is more ethical and practical in that it gives us the supreme illustration and demonstration of unselfish humility what our attitude should be. All that is said here about the deity of Christ is true, and it is certainly fundamental to our faith. It's what we affirm. We confess it when we're baptized. But the context here is about what our attitude ought to be. I found this I wanted to share with you. He frequently made claims which would have sounded outrageous and blasphemous to Jewish ears, even from the lips of the greatest of prophets. He said that he was in existence before Abraham and that he was Lord of the Sabbath. 
He claimed to forgive sins. He continually identified himself in his work, his person, and his glory with the one he, he termed his heavenly father. He accepted men's worship, and he said that he was the judge of men at the last day and that their eternal destiny would depend upon their attitude to him. Then he died. It seems inescapable, therefore, that his resurrection must be interpreted as God's decisive vindication of these claims, while the alternative, the finality of the cross, would necessarily have implied the repudiation of his presumptuous and even blasphemous assertions. That's J.N.D. Anderson in the book Christianity, The Witness of History, 1969. All of that is about our faith that points to who Jesus is and what he did. Now, the ethical demands of that in Philippians 2 concern how we think of him, how we connect to God, and how we think of and how we treat other people with unselfish humility. Next time, we'll be in Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Come back and be with us again. Thank you.